Hi friends, welcome to the Faithful Podcast. Stories of people who walked by faith and gained a fuller understanding of the faithfulness of God. I'm your host, Philip Baker. Today, I get to talk with my lovely, intelligent, faithful wife, Stephanie Baker, and we get a chance to see how God has been faithful in her life and how her understanding of God's faithfulness has evolved through the years. So here's my interview with Stephanie Baker. Stephanie Baker, welcome to the Faithful Podcast. <laughs> hey, Phil. Thanks for having me on today. <laughs> My, how the turntables have turned. <laughs> ah, you're quoting the great philosopher Michael Scott. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to interview you today on the Faithful Podcast. I know. It's so weird. Yeah. You're giving the people what they want. I don't know that anybody wanted this, oh, but that's not they're going to get it. They've heard so many great stories of God's faithfulness from all of the people that you've interviewed, but they haven't heard from you. I know. I know. I always interview people and I tell them not to be nervous. And yeah, it feels very different being it, the one not in control. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole different experience. I, I, and full disclosure for those listening, like we really, this is, this is just us sitting down on a Monday night and talking. There is not, this is not something prepped out or anything like that. So you're going to get the real, raw, and unfiltered Phil and Stephanie Baker. Well, I'm sorry, Steph. You're, you're definitely going to be in for a surprise because this is entirely scripted on my part. Are you serious? I've got <laughs> zero questions written. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we do this? Let's start at the beginning. At the beginning. Yeah. Like the so beginning of the day or the beginning of my life? Suddenly. I was awake. We yeah. keep quoting The Office. Yeah. I apologize to those that don't find that funny. Yeah. So. All right. So as far as I understand, mm-hmm. you... We're born in 1984. Why oh, you got to tell people how old I am? Oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. I don't care. All right. <laughs> and you were born in Houston, Texas. Yeah. To a believing family. Yep. And going to a very much established Southern Baptist church in North Houston. Mm-hmm. So what's one of the first memories that you have being at church? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, church was, it, it changed over the years, but it was, uh, my early memories were, um, watching my older sister in the youth group a lot and thinking, man, that seems like the coolest place in the world. So I, I have a lot of memories of watching that, but also I had some really great Sunday school teachers over the years, um, um, I know it may be hard to believe, but I'm a little bit of a goody two shoes perfectionist teacher's pet. Um, I liked 
the praise that I got at church because I knew the right answers and I knew, yeah, I knew, I knew how to behave for the most part. I mean, my parents may say otherwise, but, um, I knew how to behave and you were the good child. I, I was the good child. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of pride in being the good kid that did the right things. And, um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to be liked and at a church. I felt that, and there was a lot of families in our church that were, you know, pretty close knit. We would go on vacations together. Um, we used to have like Sunday night softball games and like watermelon and all kinds. It was, it was a really nice, like family oriented atmosphere. And so, um, there are a lot of fond memories from that time. So, Tell me how you began to realize that you weren't quite as good of a good kid as you thought and you needed uh, a savior. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember being like five years old and walking the aisle because, and for those that are not familiar with um, evangelistic churches, that is like basically your declaration before baptism that you are wanting to follow Jesus. I was five. I walked down the aisle with my best friends, and I don't think there was anything in me other than just wanting to be a part of the crowd. So that was what I said was like my my salvation moment, and then I stuck to that. And then there was a point when I was 16 years old, I was at church camp and like man, God, I was just feeling all these things that I hadn't before, like just really feeling strong conviction over my sin, um, the the three sins total in my life. Can you name <laughs> one of them for us? Uh, there was a lot of jealousy in my heart, mm. for sure. Um, can, I, can I just stop you there? Yeah. I think that's cool because there are a lot of people, um, there are a lot of people like you that grow up in the church yeah. and are good kids. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be one of the biggest hindrances to really understanding our need for Jesus. So the fact that you mentioned jealousy is great because that's one that probably gets committed a lot. Yeah. Like especially here in the West in elementary, middle school, high school, it's so prevalent mm-hmm. that it's it's normalized to the point where we don't even notice it because yeah. it's not abnormal in our culture. It's completely normal. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you realized it really shows a great work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because yeah, jealousy, I mean, obviously in the Bible, Pilate realized it was out of jealousy and envy that the religious leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified. You know, it can lead mm-hmm. to terrible things. Sorry to interrupt you. This, that, no, was, that was awesome. You know— it's interesting. I didn't date anybody before you. And we started dating when I was like 22, right? It wasn't for lack of me like wanting to date somebody, but it was interesting. Like the people around me thought I was a good girl because I didn't date anybody and I wasn't like in their eyes like boy crazy. But I was so jealous. I wanted the boys that I liked to be interested in me. So it was interesting that like dichotomy, like to them, I look great to those that can see my heart. I am like eaten up with jealousy over wanting what others have. And like 
then down the road looking at it and thinking, my goodness, God spared me from so much not dating at such a young age. But yeah, so I remember being at camp and I remember like feeling this strong, strong feelings that I hadn't really ever felt before of conviction. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I thought, okay, I'm a good Southern Baptist girl. This means that we need to rededicate our lives. Like that's kind of the terminology that we use that was like, I'm recommitting my life to Jesus. I want to get serious about this. Um, yeah, I came home from church camp, and I remember it was like, that's like usually on a Friday. And then Sunday afternoon, I just felt like so broken. Like, I remember taking a shower and just feeling like God was saying, like, this, is, this isn't it. This isn't just what I want from you. And I felt it became really clear that like i don't think i've ever really repented of my sin initially and asked you know or told jesus to like take control of my life like i've been living my life for me but like throwing a little bit of jesus in there every now and then and so i was like i think i i don't think i was ever a follower of jesus before and i think that's what jesus is calling me to i think that's what this feeling is so i remember talking to my pastor at that time and in his laundry room and talking about it with him. And he was, you know, explaining to me that, yeah, this is probably what you're going through. Like, you probably have never really seriously committed your life to Jesus, and that's what this is about. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of when I realized it and I needed to, to have this real moment where I publicly confessed that. And so— it was funny because, like, my church was like, wait, she's getting baptized again? Or, like, she's doing this whole thing again? And it was, it was, it brought up a lot of good conversations. Um, and I think it was, it was important for me. It was very humbling for me to be like, okay, I've been the good deacon's daughter and doing all the right things. But it was just because I wanted to do them, not because I felt like that's what God wanted for me. And so, um, I think it was it was good in a lot of ways, and it helped me to be humbled, and it helped me to, yeah, realize my need for Jesus in the first place. So uh, in addition to, you know, God saving you mm-hmm. and uh, God providing a pseudo large animal vet tiger king type person to be there for y'all and your family across the street when y'all would have major lacerations and stuff like that how have you you're just drop dropping such a weird detail for my childhood in there yeah you lived across from the lion king right yeah we had a, a guy that was a worked with a lot of big animals in the city of houston and had some wild animals in his backyard but um, yeah. What was the uh, question? Yeah, I was setting it up. Okay. Other than those two <laughs> things, you know. Yeah. Uh, how how did you see? Well, tell me one one story of of you seeing God's faithfulness in your life through those like middle school and high school years. Um. Well, I think it was. I mean, this is going to sound kind of sur- surface, I guess, but um, I had. I for my whole life I've struggled with like my identity and the way that other people perceive me and I wanted them to think if they didn't think anything else about me I wanted them to think I was funny and smart and that was that's not a very Christ-like attitude to have for one but 
I wanted people to think I was smart. I took all of the highest level classes. I had really good grades. I I wanted to go to a school that was like special. And so I p- applied to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I don't remember what I saw in this school that really stood out to me. I mean, it's a great school, but for some reason I was like, this is my choice. And I applied like early decision or whatever very confident I was going to get in because, you know, I was really something special. (laughs) And I didn't. And I remember being so sad about that, like just feeling like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. And like, it's funny, I teach high school kids now and have a whole lot of seniors and I am watching them go through this. And it's like, your world isn't over yet. Just calm down uh, because you didn't get into your dream school. But it was so, so funny because I didn't get in And then the next day, I got my acceptance letter from Texas A&M University, and I didn't think I was going to go there. That was kind of more of my backup school. Um, And I know that sounds terrible, but that's the kind of person I was, very, very much, like, focused on I have to be something special and do something unique and whatever. But I got in the next day, and I got into – like the major I wanted and I, all of these things, and I had not planned on going to A&M, but I saw God's faithfulness so much in that acceptance and what God did while I was there, like just kind of preparing my heart for that time. And man, that was like one of the biggest times in my life to see God working and putting myself out there in situations that were scary, but you know, seeing God do really cool stuff. Yeah, so God takes you to uh, one of the most Christian places in Texas, Mm -hmm. College Station. (laughs) (laughs) And um, how did did your view of God begin to evolve a little bit, moving away from home and encountering... uh, Christianity at A&M. Yeah. So I made a very conscious decision, and I'm not sure what motivated this. Maybe it was because I had originally planned to go far away to school. I didn't have like a bad high school experience, but I decided I didn't want to like really hang out much with my high school friends. Now, my closest friends weren't at A&M, but a lot of people I knew well were. And um, so I was like, I'm not going to just make this college or high school part two. So I started to, I got one of the biggest like things that happened is I I went to fish camp and fish camp was all right. That's a camp for incoming freshmen. But I also went to something called impact camp and impact camp is kind of like fish camp, but it's very Christian oriented. And it's like, you know, um, I feel like it was just such a good foundation for me to like give me a new group of friends that loved Jesus. And so, man, I'm, I, and I also had like such a profound experience with God there. I, I remember for the first time, like I prayed growing up, you know, you pray before meals, you pray at the beginning of a church service at the end when somebody's sick. I remember praying at the end of like one of the services they had, just being the last person in the room, like, like sitting or maybe even laying on the floor and praying for like over, like I think it was 45 minutes or an hour just by myself. And that had never happened before. I was like, man, this is, 
Like God is bigger than this thing that I just do on Sundays or this thing that makes me like a quote unquote good person. Like, like this is, this is cool. This is an adventure kind of thing. And so I made these friends and then I, I remember feeling this call from God. I felt, I mean, like this strong feeling that I needed to work with like inner city kids. And I didn't know what that meant because like College Station is teeny tiny. Bryan, Texas is teeny tiny. I didn't know what inner city might mean. And um, I visited a church and they were talking about this ministry that they had been doing for a while called Youth Impact, which I know those names are similar, but Youth Impact is um, a ministry that was kind of geared toward um, kids that might live in, you know, rougher areas, some project housing, Section 8 housing that, um, you know, we were building relationships with them. So we would go into different various apartment complexes around the city in teams. Once a week, we would either, and certain age groups, we would pick them up and take them to a park. My age group, we picked them up and brought them back to the church, hung out with these kids for a while. I worked with the middle school kids and... um yeah, so I kind of skipped over it. But yeah, I heard about this ministry and it seemed interesting and I applied for it and I um, got involved working with the middle school kids in Youth Impact. And it was really interesting to me because they had this really high standard for all of the um, the leaders in the group. And it was like, you can miss maybe one third, I don't remember what the exact rules were, but like you could miss like one Thursday meeting in the whole semester, or you could miss like one Sunday night meeting. If you had to miss more than that and it wasn't some kind of special situation, they asked you to basically take the semester off and then pray about joining back the next semester. It was very high standards you had to to keep, and it was to keep consistency in their lives. And um, I I loved it. Like I could just spend so much time with my kids. We They encouraged us to go Thursdays, Obviously, that was required, and then they wanted us to meet up with our kids once a week outside of that time for some one-on-one time or maybe one-on-two, do a Bible study with them or just hang out in their apartment complex, and man, it was really special. It I I got so nervous about, like, picking a kid to work with. Like, they made it, you know, they were like, oh, it'll just kind of come about, like, see who you bond with, whatever, and I— took a while to do it, but I finally um, met this one girl, and she was just so, like, she was really sweet girl, and it, but it took us a while, a while to bond, and, um, but I was with her for, like, three years and got to do, like, several different Bible studies with her and got to spend a lot of time just hearing what was going on in her life and at her school, and a lot of times we brought other kids from the apartments along with us, and Man, it really just showed me that there's life outside of what I grew up in, and it showed me needs in a community that I may not have gone into otherwise, and it introduced me to um, the camp that I ended up going and working at, Kids Across America, and introduced me to even more amazing people. So it was just an incredible time to force me to try to hang out with people that are a different age group. They look different than me. They have different interests than me, but like our whole, the Holy Spirit has brought us together. Now, that seems to have kind of prepared the way for you to 
branch out even further and take a trip in one of your summers to London to work with some Muslims, mm -hmm. to, to reach out to them. Uh, with Jay... Smith. Jay yeah. Smith, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw God's faithfulness on that yeah. summer trip to um, London? Yeah, sure. There was um, a trip I heard about through the Baptist student ministry that um, basically there was, they, they, I mean, they had a really awesome summer ministry program where you could apply for it and then you basically um, went for a weekend to figure out which summer mission trip you were going to do. And there were so many to choose from. There were lots of international ones. There were lots of across the country. There were some that were really local. Some were for a month and some were for all summer. And I um, I heard about the trip to London and I don't remember why I was really interested in it. I met a girl who had been before and was planning to go again and she just spoke really highly about it. And she, um, she really got me excited about it. And um, they did a really great thing with this program because, like, they made it really, really affordable. Like, I think the whole summer, for the whole summer, for my flight, for my place to live, most of my meals, I think I had to raise, like, $1,200 in support because the um, Baptist Cooperative Mission or whatever helped with the rest. But, um, yeah, I got to spend a summer in London. Like, that That was insane. But um, our focus was to work with Muslim individuals there because it's a very popular—I mean, like, it's a very diverse city. But it also—there's a lot of people that are traveling there from Middle Eastern countries because it's a lot cooler to go there during the summer. A lot of them are very wealthy individuals. But we learned to how to build relationships with them. and um, So I really want to know about— your adventure at mm -hmm. Speaker's Corner, okay. where Jay brought you up. Yeah, yeah. I know you do. That's because it's so unlike me. It's one of it's it's a funny story, but it's um, yeah. So every week, like once a, once a week, we would meet with this evangelist named Jay Smith, and he was this very bold guy who would go to Speaker's Corner every Sunday afternoon. Speaker's Corner is in Hyde Park in London. If you've never, or if you've ever been to London, or if you ever go to London, you should. If you're there on a Sunday, check out Hyde Park. It is a little bit bananas, like, but in a really interesting way. Like, it's safe. It's just, um, it's it's where the phrase "getting on your soapbox" comes from. People liter literally will bring a box or a ladder to stand on, and they just start sharing their ideas or their thoughts and. They might shout it. They might have some, you know, dialogue going on with individuals. But Jay Smith has been for years. I don't. I mean, I don't know what he does now, but he had already been for years seeking to evangelize the Muslims there. So he wanted to tell them about Jesus. And um, a lot of these um, individuals were very educated scholars. Um, they would also bring their own ladders and stand on them and. A lot of times it got very hostile um, in certain areas. We tried to keep things very calm and, you know, always just point back to the person of Jesus. And each week before we went out, we had sort of a tutorial on what um, 
where Jay was going to go with, like, his lesson or something along those lines. And we were supposed to sort of—we we didn't have, like, strict orders or anything like that, but it was—the idea was, like, we were sort of there mingling. So we might be in the audience listening to him, or we might go listen to Muslim individuals and maybe try and have our own conversations with people in the background. The goal was not necessarily to be— the focus of this time, but to sort of use it as a time to have conversations because it can be hard to talk about these subjects. So um, Jay was talking and he had somebody else on the ladder with him and I don't remember what exactly they were talking about. And Jay sort of wanted to go one direction and I guess the guy either forgot what we had discussed or he wasn't getting where Jay was going and Jay was sort of asking the audience and I was answering out loud. I was in the front, and um, <laughs> he was like, you, you can come up here. And I did not want to, but he um, ended up bringing me up there with him to kind of have this conversation. And um, that, so that was that was crazy. That was so scary. I am not the person who necessarily loves to be at the front of a situation, especially one that's in a lot of ways, like kind of confrontational, but it was really interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to say about it, but it was terrifying. And um, at the same time, it was kind of exhilarating to, to feel God, like giving me the words to say. I didn't have much of a plan, but I felt as if there was this, you know, stuff being given to me by God to say that was making sense and things that I didn't feel like were from me. So it was it was really cool, but it was really scary. And it's really funny for me to look back on and think, oh, my gosh, that was me. Like, that was me on there um, in these situations because it's it was very unlike my normal way of doing things. So something else that's kind of cool but a little mm-hmm. bit scary is moving across the country. Yeah. To go live in a place where you don't know anybody. Yeah. And that's what you did. You went to after your sophomore year at A and M. Basically, you decided yeah. to change majors, mm-hmm. become a nursing major. Yeah. And move to Philly mm-hmm. to go to LaSalle University to do, to do nursing school there. So while you were there. Pretty early on, you met a family that became like your second family. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you saw God's faithfulness there. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I think there was a part of me moving to Philly that was like going back to that time wanting to go to North Carolina and do something totally different. And I think I wanted to get all out of my own. And I did. And it was a little scarier than I expected. Um but yeah, I found a church that I started visiting, and I went to a baby shower for somebody that was there, and I met this lady, and she I had no idea how old she was. I couldn't gauge it at all, but she told me I needed to meet her kids and that her kids were around—I think she may have told me they were around my age, but I, I thought that was so strange. She was like, you just need to meet my kids. You need to meet my kids. And I think it was on a Saturday afternoon. She's like, tomorrow after church, you can come over my house. We can have lunch if you want to. And 
that would be, you know, we would love to have you over. So I remember agonizing over this. Should I do this? Is this weird? This is so weird. Um, this is just a mom telling me you need to meet her kids. Her kids are probably going to think I'm a total weirdo coming over. At the same time, my roommates were all gone for the weekend and weren't going to get back till Sunday night. And I was so lonely. So they just kind of figured, like, I don't have anything else to lose. Like, I might look a little silly, but it might end up being something important. And I remember thinking, like, I think this could be something important in my life. So I went, and I met her kids, and I they were great. And one of them was right at my age. One was a little bit older, and then there were two that were younger. And um, we really hit it off and enjoyed it. We spent a couple hours together, and then the mom invited me to come back. I think the next week she said, if you want to come stay the night on Saturday night, you can stay the night with us and then ride to church with us in the morning. And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> this is not a normal thing to offer to some stranger that you don't know that's from out of state. Like, it just seemed so odd to me, but at the same time, so warm. Hospitality. Yeah. I mean, and anybody that knows the Kimes knows that that's what they do. I mean, their house is like home base. Like, people are always coming and going. And um, so, yeah, I started going over there almost every Saturday night because I had nothing to do. Um, and I think I would have chosen this over most any other thing anyway, but all of my roommates went home every weekend. So I would go over there, stay the night, have a great time, ride with them to church in the morning. And it was so, so special to me. And, um, yeah, I mean, it became a second family. I spent so much time. I spent way more time with them during that year than I did with my own family, of course, because they were back home. But um, I just saw this style of hospitality that I had never seen before. And um, Faith, she was just, she was awesome. She always wanted to make you feel welcome. And, but you knew at some point she was going to sit down with you and have like a deep conversation. Like it was going to get there. And you were like, all right, here we go. This is it. <laughs> and um, she had such like good advice. And um, and her daughter, Emily, was like a little sister to me. And I, we just had so much fun together. And I just treasured the time that I had with each one of them. And it was so neat whenever... I mean, I the loneliness was gone. I didn't feel that anymore. And I just saw God giving me this family that I didn't know I needed. Um, I thought I was able to do it on my own, go off. I was going to make all these friends. And I did. I made friends in the nursing program. But people in Philly are very different than people, especially at Texas A&M. So I, I made friends in the nursing program, but I really struggled to make friends outside of that. So... Um, God was really knew what he was doing. I once I got up there and I realized, oh man, <laughs> this is getting real. Um, it didn't take long before God provided in that way. So let's fast forward about a year and a half. Okay. And you meet another person who eventually is gonna become like family to you. Yeah. Actually become <laughs> literally family to you. <laughs> I think you're referring to yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, but we don't want to talk about all that. We've done an episode yeah, together where we talked about marriage and, and parenting and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So 
I don't remember what episode that is, but um, yeah. we'll just direct people to go back through Just your, listen to all the episodes with me and Phil together, and yeah. it'll be in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So let's focus more on you, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> after, very, very soon after we get married, I think, mm-hmm. you begin a job as a labor and delivery nurse working night shift. Yeah. Crazy stories. <laughs> There's so some. many cool, cool, crazy stories. Yeah. But just share with me one story or example of God's faithfulness in this new career. Yeah, that was really, really hard time in a lot of ways, but really good. So I graduated nursing school in July. We got married in December. I worked for my dad in between there. Um, and then I, and I was like working to pass my boards and do all that stuff. And um, I started my job in January, so right after we got married. And that was my first time making, like, big girl money, so that was exciting. But, oh, my goodness, I had so much stress all the time. I felt, like, completely inadequate for probably the first year. I remember (laughs) – this is not a story of God's faithfulness, but it was just funny. I don't know if you remember this, but there it probably happened more than once. But it would come out in my sleep. I remember. You remember? <laughs> I remember like realize, and this is working night shift and just being on a funky schedule, flipping back and forth between days and nights. But I remember like realizing I was asleep, but in my mind I was like asleep at work. And so I was like shaking you. I'm like, who is watching the patient, and you were laughing at me like, what is wrong with you? And I got even more angry because you were laughing and you weren't taking this seriously. Who is watching the patient? I am. I've uh, got it. I've yeah, got it. Got it. Okay. And like I would hear the alarm bells like in my sleep. It was, it was so stressful. Like there was so much anxiety in me or I'd come home worrying, oh my gosh, what did I not do? But I think that's the plight of all people in the medical field specifically. I can speak to nurses. But um, story of God's faithfulness, gosh, man, I'm trying to think of, there were so many times. Go ahead. Do you have something in mind? Well, the one where you're on the stretcher helping Oh gosh, That was Uh, incredible. So it was, okay, so I was on orientation for a couple of months, and then maybe soon after I was off of orientation, I was working night shift, and, like, I remember talking to this nurse about um, a cord prolapse, which is when the cord comes and slips, like, the umbilical cord will slip out either out of the vagina. Sometimes it's still in the vagina, but it slips out and it becomes compressed. So it's below the baby's head. Um So I remember hearing this and thinking, like, okay, well, what do you do if that happens? And I remember asking her, and one of the things this – this awesome nurse, Christina, she worked with me for years. Um, she always, she was a couple years ahead of me in experience, and she always said, like, always ask questions. You never know when it's going to come up. Like, you never know when you're going to need these things. So we were just sitting chatting, and she shared, oh, this is what you do. You basically, you elevate, you try and hold the baby's head up, you lay the patient down, and they have to go for a stat C-section. And so I was like, okay, we just kind of file it away. Well, Two or three weeks later, we had this patient. Oh, my gosh, it was the saddest. She had—I don't know how much I can—I don't want to, like, give away too much about her, but she had a lot of loss during this pregnancy, um, personal loss. 
And this baby, you know, every baby is like precious, but this was one that we were, we felt very, like as a, a, um, a nursing team, we felt very strongly about. She, her, her water broke really early. She was in the hospital for a long time. Um, she had been there so long that we had like taken out her IV. We were just kind of monitoring her. Well, she, we were really, really, really busy one night. And um, this, she, I hear her screaming down the hall and she's screaming, my baby's umbilical cord came out. And <laughs> I'm like this baby nurse who's been out on my own for maybe a couple of weeks. And I'm like, oh crap, what do I do? And I can't find any of the other nurses. And I'm running back there and she had been, she'd gotten up to the bathroom and sure enough, like the umbilical cord was dangling between her legs. And so I called for another nurse to come help me and I got the patient on the floor and I got a glove on and I'm helping to hold the baby's head up. Well, once you do that, you can't take your hand out until the baby is delivered via C-section. So that means that you are... I, you're, you're tied to her just like the baby. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't... If you do, you're supposed... The idea is you're basically taking the pressure off the umbilical cord so that the baby is getting blood and oxygen as it needs. So she runs and gets another nurse. They ended up um, grabbing a stretcher for me. We got that patient back to the operating room so fast. It was incredible. The doctor... They had just finished a C-section, so everybody was right in the right place at the right time. And I but we got up on the stretcher and I am on the stretcher between her legs with my hand up in her vagina to hold this baby's head off of it. And we're flying down the hall and I had this patient that was <laughs> waiting for a C-section. It wasn't an emergency, but it was just going to be a C-section. I remember my other coworker, they kept coming out asking how much longer it was going to be. And they were walking out to ask us again, and one of my coworkers just stuck her hand in her face and is like, not now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're flying down the hall. Somebody's putting an IV in. We've got the operating room getting set up. We got back there in a matter of just a few moments. It was so fast. And I'm underneath the drape. <laughs> oh, actually, before this, the patient is freaking out because she is so afraid she's going to lose her baby because that yeah. does happen in this right. situation. Yeah. But... They tell you in nursing school, don't give false reassurance. And she's like, is, is everything going to be okay? Is my baby going to be okay? And I remember just saying, like, we're going to do everything we can for you. And I remember saying, do you pray? And she was like, yeah. And I said, this is the time to pray. And I was like, I'm praying with you right now. And so we were both praying. And um, <laughs> they put the drapes down for the C-section. I am underneath the plastic drapes still between her legs until they're able to get the baby out. And thankfully, you know, praise God, the baby was was fine. Um, and I went to visit her later, and it was just such a, a sweet thing because she had been through so much. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was crazy. It doesn't always turn out that way. But, man, when you get to see God come through in those ways, like it really bonded us you know, as a patient and a nurse. Now, you have a heart for helping people. And um, you're someone who will dive into those kind of situations. And um, as the years went on, uh, you're kind of seeking out, do I want to do this forever? This is really like a physically taxing job. <laughs> yeah, Being riding riding L&D. down the hall between somebody's yeah. legs. Yeah. It's, it's rough. Yeah. And so you began to think, hmm, 
what could I do? And you had a friend Mm -hmm. that was in forensic nursing. Yeah. And so you decided to try to do both basically at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is pretty stressful. Uh, Would you mind talking a little bit about how you saw God's faithfulness in such a stressful and traumatic job? Yeah. So forensic nursing, for anybody that doesn't know, sometimes it's called like SANE nursing, sexual assault nurse examiner. We did um, physical and sexual assault examinations on patients. And um, I had heard about it from a friend who had been doing it for a while, and she was um, kind of encouraging me to do this. This was a bigger, like a big sister to me, Dana, and she had, she enjoyed it, and she was telling me about how I should look into it. And so I figured, you know, I'll try it on the side because I don't want to leave my part, my full-time job just yet. And um, it was really hard. It was a lot of work. Um, a lot of my training I did on days, and I was working night shift, and it was really tiring. But, um, I mean, there were so many different instances with patients where um, I think what I, I really saw God's faithfulness in is that, like, God— God cares so deeply for those that have been victimized, especially. And um, these individuals now, uh, most of my patients were female, but I mean, it could be males too, but um, they they were, they had dealt with maybe the police officers who they initially told them that they had been assaulted, or maybe they had dealt with ER staff that wasn't always you know, glad to see them or necessarily very kind or tender toward them. And um, a lot of times they weren't believed. And I really, I had a great teacher in this program and she just instilled some things in me that have to this day stuck with me as like, you know, always believe them. You may be the only person who believes them, but you need to believe your patient. And um, so that was very key and just listening to them was so important and it was it would often happen that at the end of these exams the patients would give us a hug um because it had been so much to go through and then finally they have somebody that will listen to them and try to be give them as much dignity and tenderness as we could and it didn't matter. I mean, like I was working in a night shift, and so a lot of times you get a call at two or three in the morning, and you'd have to like get out of bed because we were on call and go drive to wherever, and it was really tiring. But um, to know that you got to be a part of making that process a little bit easier for somebody because it is, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people think it's not a big deal to go through one of those examinations and maybe somebody might make that up, but just it's, it can be a very humiliating process. And I was glad to be able to be a part of like giving them some dignity and respect and listening to them and showing them that I cared. Yeah. It's, it's a restorative job as well. Like you get to, like you're talking about their dignity has been taken away. Yeah. And in order for them to, to be proactive in, in, bringing justice, they've got to go through something that is, again, humiliating and takes their dignity away, but you get to care for them Mm -hmm. through that. Yeah. And that's such an important 
job. Yeah. Now that is very stressful. Mm-hmm. And especially working night shift and being on call, like that is yeah. rough. And so eventually you you began feeling like you needed to get your master's degree mm-hmm. to maybe one day do some teaching yeah. uh, or do women's health stuff as mm-hmm. a nurse practitioner. And yeah. so that's what you did. Mm-hmm. And um, God got you through that program. Yeah. There's some really tough times in that <laughs> yeah, program, yeah. but he got you through it. And eventually you started doing some, some women's health as a nurse practitioner. Yeah. What's one way that you saw God's faithfulness there? Yeah. I mean, I, with doing my master's, I, I think when I was in school, like nursing school, I remember thinking like, I want to get my master's because I want to teach. But then I heard that like nursing school teachers made almost nothing. And I was like, maybe it'll be like a retirement job. So I remember always thinking I wanted to get my master's to be able to teach. And then um, I talked to somebody along the way who said, hey, you can teach with any kind of master's. You should get something that's more general. And the family nurse practitioner route was really big at the time. And so think that's why I went that route. I basically started with two other coworkers, and we just were like, hey, we're going to all do this together. Um, and I'd never, I didn't really like being a nurse practitioner. <laughs> it was a little, little more uh, stress and being the middleman than I was hoping for. And, um, but it was, it was cool. And what's interesting is that like in every single one of my jobs, my favorite part has always been the relational side. Like some I've met nurse practitioners who are like, oh, I just want to solve the mystery. I want to figure out what's going on with them. And like to me, I'm like, I just, I just want to like spend time with them. I want them to be heard. And even in my job now, like I feel like that's a lot of what I do. And also like I always enjoyed working with teenage or young women. And women's health always opened up doors to do that. So I worked um, for about a year and a half as a nurse practitioner, and I think, like, I met some really great patients in that time, and I really enjoyed um, a lot of them. And But there was one, um, one that I met that I always referred to as my favorite patient, and it was funny because I met her after I'd only been there a couple of weeks. I didn't know anything. I felt like such a fish out of water. And we met, and she was having some health issues, and it ended up being an issue where she had to keep coming back for, um, you know, reevaluation and, like, let's figure out what to do. And we just really talked a lot. She had just moved to Houston from Wisconsin and um, didn't know anybody there, and she had a young baby, and she had a lot of family issues going on, and she just wanted, wanted to talk. And I loved talking to her. And it's um, it ended up being that um, this relationship was able to grow because she got pregnant. And so we ended up seeing each other again a lot. And, um, yeah, this is, this is Joy Meadows. This is the one that's been on my podcast several times, one of my best friends. And um, it was so cool how God brought that about. Like, honestly— I did not love being a nurse practitioner. I've already said that. That's very clear. But like, I don't know how we would have ended up friends otherwise. I don't know how we would have ever met. And I am so thankful 
for that friendship. I don't know if I had to get a master's and do all that. <laughs> was to get it a, worth it? To I be think it with was Joy? worth it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it was great. Like, um, but it was so interesting how God brought us together. I mean, she dealt with a loss of a pregnancy in there, and um, and I was able to because I think one of my downfalls as a nurse practitioner was that I I always spent too long with my patients. I was always kind of being rushed along a little bit, but I always, you know, didn't want to cut them off when they were talking or I wanted them to feel important. But in a doctor's office, that doesn't work very well. (laughs) As most people that have ever been to the doctor know, it's, you know, 10 minutes max that you get. But it was, it was so like such a sweet thing from God to to give me that friendship. And then that allowed us to end up at the church that you would work at, working with her husband. And that wasn't a great experience overall, but or at least in the end, but we met so many amazing people through that. And some of our dearest friends, I mean, the friends that you like suffer through things with, they just, they're those friends for life. I mean, they're your family. So yeah, so yeah. many people that have been on your podcast <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have, were people that we met there. Yeah. So how did your view of what it means to be faithful evolve through so much uh, chaos and destructive stuff that was going on at that church? Yeah. Uh, <sighs> you know... It's there's a lot of habits in me that were forged deep in childhood and that come from my family, but also from my like need to be the good girl. And um, I think I always thought I would be the person who loved going to church on Sundays and loved being a part of that. And, um, there's been periods because of what I've been through where I just it's I've I've never gone away from community. We've had our small group, Sunday night small group that's been the most constant thing. I mean it is that that is our that's our what I consider to be our church. Um but like attending church in a building has become challenging at times. Um, I find myself being a lot more skeptical than I would have been before. And um, so to, as far as staying faithful in that. Not so much how have you stayed faithful through it, but how is your view of what it means to be faithful evolved through this like really traumatic period? Well, I think I've, I have a lot more grace for people that have been through stuff because there were people that left the church ahead of us and some of them didn't att- attend church for a really long time and most that were in ministry are not anymore and i think that stephanie from 10 years ago would have just seen that and like shook my head like what a shame you're going to let these people ruin your situation or whatever but me now, I feel like I have a different understanding of what church really is. And we've been a part of house churches before, or house church before, so that's nothing new to me. But um, 
I think faithfulness is a desire to to stick it out with God through the hard times. And I think it's a um, a commitment, kind of like a marriage. I mean, we have great times in our marriage, but we have hard times in our marriage too. I, I know that even in our hard times that like that you love me and that you know you are my my teammate um and if you love me in hard times like i i can take comfort because i know god loves me so much more so i think staying faithful is understanding that there yeah that the feelings aren't always there but um we remain in community of people that will um that will challenge us and that will continue to point us to Jesus because through this it it was really easy to get bitter at times and i think that the community that god provided for us helped to point us back to Jesus and show us how to remain or you know what it means to remain faithful or how to remain faithful even when man does us so wrong, you know, where, you know, we're slandered or where um, we're hurt. When we suffer, we're experiencing a little bit of what Jesus went through. And when we go through hard times, Jesus promised us that that was going to happen. And so we we don't look at that and say, oh, God, where were you? I look at it and say, like, God, this must make you so sad, too. And um, that's what I think a lot of times about the individuals that did so much damage. It's like, they're going to have to answer for what they did, but so am I. I can't use it as an excuse to just write off all the people of God. I've talked to some people from that previous church that talked about being really skeptical of people in churches now. And um, I think that can be easy. That can that can happen more easily than we would imagine. But I think that the vast majority of the people that I have come across in my church life have been amazing individuals that um, that really do seek to honor God with their lives. And um, those people that are few and far between that do so much damage are, they're going to have to answer for it. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I can only be responsible for me and I want to try and be the person, you know, partially with my podcast, but just as a friend who listens to those hard things and gives them a space to share and tells and encourages other people that it's not always going to be like this. So as I'm thinking through all that you've shared in your in this story tonight, um, you have been there for people that have gone through tremendous hurt mm-hmm. over and over. You have, whether it be in youth impact or it's going on into uh, nursing and... Um, the forensic nursing, L&D forensic nursing, and then women's health, you know, like, and then 
here with your podcast, you've provided an ear for people who are mourning to be able to voice that. And we live in a culture where sometimes, like in a, in a sitcom, like we mentioned The Office mm-hmm. or like Friends or Seinfeld, like they'll, they'll talk about people dying from time to time. Mm-hmm. But it'll only be given a few seconds where sadness is allowed to be felt by the watcher. Mm-hmm. And then it immediately turns to a joke. Yeah. And so we are a culture um, that does not know how to mourn. Uh, we don't know how to do that. But that doesn't mean the, the grief goes away. Mm-hmm. It just gets expressed in other ways. And so I think one of the ways that you have been faithful to the church uh, has been helping people find God's comfort, mm-hmm. not the world's comfort. And this season in podcasting, I think has been great. I mean, your, your podcast is not about spiritual abuse, yeah. but that's come up quite a bit. Uh, and people need to be able to to talk about this stuff that they don't want to talk about really and cuz they think they think they're alone yeah but it's such a great ministry to people that are listening because people start to realize I'm not alone mm-hmm. and maybe your their stories aren't exactly the same but there's so many similarities that helps them yeah come back we got to mourn in order to find God's comfort and mm-hmm. i think that's been just a tremendous uh, blessing of your podcast. So thanks for doing this stuff. It's been my pleasure. It's been our pleasure getting to hear all of these stories. (laughs) For sure. I mean, I I love, like hearing God's faithfulness is every single time, every single episode that I record or I hear someone else's story, it just recharges my faith. It reminds me that we have hard times, that we have a God who loves us and he's not leaving us. And he's going to take these really awful things that go on in our life. And he's often making something beautiful out of it that we just can't even see. And, um, it's just so neat to be able to take that perspective and and talk to people that are a little bit further down the road, a little bit removed from that situation and just see how God has taken it and he's done something good with their life or he has shaped their character in a positive way through this experience. And, and it's, it's, it's one of the things I really, really enjoy about it. Well, that was weird (laughs) being on the other side of the interview, but thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, If you enjoy the Faithful Podcast, leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're there. You can find me on Instagram at Faithful Podcast or at faithfulpodcast.podbean.com. Have a great week, guys, and remember to stay faithful.